right, thank you, Elizabeth. And thank you, kids. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Waiting is not easy. The picture, there were way too many pages for me to like try to scan and keep up with on there. Uh, but what, what they saw was, um, it was the night sky, right? The, the, and it's brilliance. Right? So it's getting darker and they, they wanted to be able to see it. And um, Our household is a big fan of Mo Willems, the author of that. Uh, we find his books to be entertaining and engaging. And I actually borrowed that book from uh, Mrs. Bagwell, who was the kindergarten teacher for um, Elizabeth and Austin. And, I mean, she's, <laughs> I, the, the Turtle Creek where my kids go to school, they just, they love Elephant Piggy. They have, like, an Elephant and Piggy day there where they get people dressed in, like, Elephant and Piggy costumes. And, um, you know, their end-of-the-year celebration is the kids, like, kind of dressing up, you know, wearing, like, pink or, or gray. So Elephant, Gerald, and Piggy is a pig. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll never forget Elizabeth and Austin, like, animatedly reading, right? Because this is in kindergarten, learning to read and reading. Uh, a big guy took my ball, and my new friend is so fun uh, that they participated with. And like I said, in light of not having kids' church today, I wanted to have something for the younger members of our congregation to connect with. A book with two characters that describe the painstaking process of having to wait for something that's exciting, Lately, every few days, Catherine has been asking me, how many days is it to Christmas? And, you know, what are we at now? We're at tw- uh, 28 days, I guess. Yeah, four weeks from today. And, you know, she's like, I want it to be tomorrow. And I think we all can sympathize with that feeling because she's waiting for the time of the, the, the festivities, the celebration. But let's be honest, right? The kids in the congregation are not the only ones who resonate with the title of the book that waiting is not easy. We live in a culture of immediate gratification. If I have a product that I want or I need, I I don't even need to drive out to Target to pick it up. I can order it from Amazon and have it delivered on my front porch the very next day. In fact, I was doing some searching today, and there are a couple things that I could have had between 4 to 10 o'clock tonight, same day. Flight has shortened our time of waiting between how long it took to travel from one coast of our country to the other. If I have fantasy football scores that I want to check, I don't got to do the calculations. I don't even need to watch the games. I can just pull out an app on my smartphone and have it instantly. The internet moves at the speed of light. My generation and older remembers the days of dial-up internet. The world was at your fingertips, but it took you half a day to download an MP3. We're spoiled with how quickly we can get the things that we want and the things that we need, which is all the more reason for us to reflect on this season of Advent. See, Advent is a time in the church calendar, a time of preparation for Christmas. Advent comes from the Latin word, which means coming or arrival. Right, I've, I've got an Advent calendar at home. It's a The Office Funko Pop Advent calendar. So every day I'm opening one of those cardboard doors and seeing, you know, whether it's like Jim Halpert as Golden Face or, you know, Kevin dropping chili. I don't know, whatever it is. Because it's meant to count down. It's a timeline counting down. Once all those doors are open, Christmas is here. We all have various routines that we're patiently waiting to celebrate the season. 
Now, as believers in Christ, during this season, we do two things simultaneously, right? We look backwards. We wait with the saints of the Old Testament, the ones who longed to look upon the promised Messiah. But we also look forward, recognizing that while Jesus has come, we are still waiting. We're still waiting for him to come again, for his second coming, his second advent. This season in the church calendar provides us for an opportunity to slow down, to kind of rebel against that culture of instant gratification, to sit in the tension of waiting, of longing, of anticipating. And we know that when there is something delightful on the other side, it makes that waiting all the more difficult. And so this morning, we're kicking off our Advent series through this season, and and I want to go just a little bit more of that traditional or liturgical route. Sarah Flowers and I were just talking this morning that this, I think, is really important for us, especially in kind of non-denominational, broadly evangelical churches, to slow our pace, to change our rhythm, because if we're just singing the same, you know, excited songs each and every week, we somehow, I think we miss something we lose something. So it's important to, to recognize that waiting, to sing songs in a minor key, to acknowledge that lament. You know, we have here the Advent wreath, a, a tool that provides different elements of Christ's arrival for us to contemplate. And so the first candle that we've lit today traditionally is the candle of hope. Some, some traditions call it the prophet's candle. We begin by focusing on this process of waiting, I want us to walk through just a couple of biblical texts and themes to remind us of what it means to wait with our ancestors in the faith, wait with those who have gone before us, and what waiting might look like for us in this age. Now, I think it's often difficult for us to put ourselves in the shoes of the Old Testament saint. You know, I I have been sharing a number of times about our Bible reading plan, reading one chapter of the scriptures a day, and we've gone a little bit over two years, and so we're probably about halfway through the scripture, because, you know, it'll take us at this pace about four years to get through it. So four years through reading the scriptures, right, seeing the redemptive story of God play out in front of our years, but in these four years, in the Old Testament, we have covered about 1,600 years of history, so that's, that's, I mean, even if it's taken us four years, that's still kind of fast forward, you know, to, to think through 1,600 years. And I'm starting that counter with Abraham, right? There are generations upon generations of stories before Abraham, the Tower of Babel, of Noah, of Adam and Eve, but we don't really have, they're so old that we don't have these historical markers to cement precisely when they existed. I mean, think about this for a moment. Abraham lived about 2,000 years before the time Of Jesus. So Abraham was about as far removed from the birth of Jesus Christ as we are today. In John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham, even 2,000 years before the arrival of Jesus Christ, was already waiting for the promised Messiah right? Waiting for the deliverance, the righteousness that he would provide. I mean, that is a really, really long time. 
We live in a time after the arrival of Jesus, and hindsight can be 2020. Every year we think about the birth of Jesus, we think about the nativity story, but it's easy to sentimentalize, sentimentalize it. I don't think I said that right. You know what I'm trying to say. You know, we sing these songs like Away in a Manger with their serene melodies, singing things about Jesus, you know, like no crying he makes. Lies. I mean, come on, that's clearly inaccurate. Jesus is a baby, babies cry. We overdramatize these things. We celebrate his arrival, but we ignore the fact that there was desperate waiting, there was anticipation. Just another statistic to put it in, in, in uh, kind of compare for you. The last book, perspective, that's what I was looking for. The last book of the Old Testament was the prophet Malachi. Malachi is the book that reveals that the Messiah is going to be born in the city of Bethlehem, you know, uh, introduces us to the figure who is going to prepare the way for the Lord and the spirit of Elijah, who we know to be John the Baptist. So Malachi is one of the prophets, the last of the prophets in the Old Testament, giving us the address, the street address, if you will, for Jesus, so that when he arrived, we knew what to look for. But Malachi was written in 430 BC, 400, over 400 years before the time of Jesus. And so this is the last authoritative book that we have in the Old Testament. It means that there were 400 years of divine silence. Again, it doesn't mean that God wasn't working in that time, but not in this authoritative way. 400 years, that is longer than the time that our country has been in existence as a nation. I mean, it, it, it's barely less than the time that, that Columbus had arrived. These people were desperate for the word of God, the presence of God in their midst with the arrival of the Messiah. But not only was there silence, but I think it can be argued that God had not returned to the land of Israel. That's why what I, what I was sharing it, it, before we did our offering, that name of Emmanuel is so important to them, God with us, because there had been a whole, a whole host of centuries that God potentially was not, at least not in the way that he used to be. Because from the time of the Exodus, God dwelled with his people. Right? I, he, he dwelled in that tabernacle, that glorified tent, the tent of meeting they called it. Right? And, and any time they broke camp, they broke that tent down and, you know, carried with it until they went into the, to the land of Israel. But even when they were in Israel, that tent continued to be the place where God dwelled. It wasn't until the son of King David, King Solomon, that the, a temple, right, a permanent house for God was finally constructed. And when the, that temple was dedicated, the scriptures describe the presence, that palpable physical presence of God. What's often traced, if you've ever heard of the Shekinah, Shekinah glory of God, that, that glory of God that you can almost feel, almost touch, descends in the temple. God was truly dwelling, was living with his people. But then his people rebelled. They went after idols. They were unfaithful to God. God is exceedingly patient, but he, got, he has his limits. And in the book of Ezekiel, what we see, we see this process where that glory of God goes and moves from the holy of holies into the kind of front stoops of the temple and then moves to the ex- extent of the temple grounds and then moves to the hills on the east and then disappears. Right? 
God's presence leaves the temple. And it's soon after that that Israel is conquered by the Babylonians, carried into exile. Now, God's people remained in exile in Babylon. They were there for 70 years. They're finally able to physically return to their promised land. But what's missing in Scripture when that happens is there's no recorded return of God's presence to his people. I think it can be argued that for 500 years before the time of Jesus, God's physical dwelling presence was not there. They were still in spiritual exile, disconnected from this life-giving presence. This is the setting that the Israelites waited for God to come back like he had an old, like all those stories that they heard of their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather when God dwelled with his people. I want to share two passages from the prophet Isaiah which points to this arrival of the Messiah. The first is this, Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. And this describes the work of John the Baptist, preparing the path for the Messiah. It says this in, in chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The glory will be revealed. And what I want to draw to you is the, those first two verses, right? Because the passage begins with words of comfort. Words of peace that their time of warfare has ended. I'm sure these are words of comfort, words of encouragement even for us in our day. We'll talk a little bit more about Jesus being the Prince of Peace next week. But the, the, these were statements that the people of Israel needed to cling to. As the generations passed and there was still no sign of God's returning presence, still no sign of the promised Messiah, I'm sure these verses became a lifeline to them. It was a reminder that God was ultimately for them in the end. Right, the promise, though it had yet to be fulfilled, cultivated a spirit of hope in them. Right, God was coming. They just they had to wait a little bit more. And I'm sure at times they were like elephant, just like Gerald is his name. I'm done waiting. I've waited long enough. All right, I'll wait a little bit more. Right, this better be worth it. The other passage that I want to share is one of the more frequently quoted prophecies in the Christmas season about the arrival of Jesus. Isaiah 9, 2-7, it says this, The people who walked in darkness, again, language of, of exile, spiritual exile, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You've multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Again, think this is language of, the, of peace, of shalom, which we'll get to next week. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the days of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And here's the part that you're probably familiar with. For to us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I think it's important for us as we think of stories, read passages like this, it sounds so nice, you know, it's so serene about this child that's going to be born. But we would do well to not overly sentimentalize the story. The coming Messiah was not merely a meek child lying in an animal feeding trough, but as we see in our passage, was the same, at the same time, named Mighty God. Jesus, the seemingly helpless baby who was utterly dependent upon his parents for food and hygiene, was at the same time the full nature of God in the flesh. Right? This small child came to bring us salvation, but he also came to call us to repentance. Right? There, there, there's some teeth to what he brings. Yes, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus, the one who sacrificed himself on the cross for our benefit, but it's not merely our Savior, but the one who is also our Lord. And as mighty God, he has authority that we need to recognize, that we need to respect. Now, as I said earlier, we know, we acknowledge that Jesus has come, but that doesn't mean that our time of waiting is over. We live in a time where we don't have to look far to see brokenness, oppression, sickness, death, you know, I, I got a text earlier that Mike and Carol aren't here because they're sick. They couldn't be here with us, right? Sickness, whether it's a cold or whether it's cancer, prevents us from being all that God's called us to be at times. And so we wait even now to trust in the promises of God that the way that things are now are not how they're going to be forever, right? That the way that things ought to be, God is coming to, to set them right, to finish them. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus kind of foreshadows this. He takes the scroll of Isaiah and reads the following passage. This is found in Luke 4, but he's reading, he's quoting Isaiah 61, 1-2. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is where he stopped. Because Jesus came to bring good news, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But the verse doesn't actually end there. To finish it, it says, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And I think Jesus intentionally stopped because the first part of his ministry was meant to bring those words of comfort, those, to, to, to start that process of seeing God's king, kingdom established more and more fully in the world. But he didn't come as a conquering king, much that's partially how, why he was crucified, which we'll get to that maybe more in Easter. But he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But there is a day that is coming where he will return to proclaim the day of the vengeance of our God. There's a day when that remainder of the passage that Christ started will be fulfilled, when God returns to bring his vengeance against evil and injustice. Revelation 19 verses 11 to 13, and this is what we wait for, describes the second arrival of Christ. John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed, clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now, I know there are many of us who we read these words and they might make us cringe. We might be a little uncomfortable with it. Because the picture that we often get of Jesus in the Gospels is one of love and grace, which absolutely it is. But if we just think about him as a gentle spirit, it feels disconnected from the anger and wrath described in Revelation. But what we know, what Hebrews 13 verse 8 tells us, is that there is no change of identity between these two advents. Right? The first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, there is, there is harmony, there is union between the two. Right? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's consistency in him. What we saw in his earthly life is that on the cross, Jesus executes judgment, dying in solidarity with sinners, solidarity of those who suffer, creating a path to bring peace and reconciliation between God and humanity. In fact, that robe dipped in blood that you see in verse 13, many scholars think that that's not necessarily the blood of his enemies, but it's a reference to his own blood that's been poured out for our salvation. But it's important to acknowledge that there are those who resist his grace. And the Bible tells us there's going to be a day that God's judgment falls on them. Glenn Packiam, who writes for Christianity Today, he describes how Jesus Christ responds to injustice and evil. And I think this is so apt. God's response to injustice and evil first is he bleeds. He bleeds for us. Glenn says, quote, the king of kings brings life by his death, but if you resist his life and insist on protecting your own instead of life, you will get death. Now, this is ultimately that second advent, that future that we are waiting for, one where God returns to set all that is right, all that is wrong, right. We wait for the second advent of Jesus for God the Father to unite heaven and earth to fill it with his presence. And this is what it means to hope, to have hope that we celebrate or that we acknowledge this morning. Much like the saints of the Old Testament, we wait in imperfect circumstances for the revealing, the completion of God's plan. We hold on to the hope of God's goodness in the world when it feels anything but good. Waiting is not easy. Now, I, I, uh, as I was preparing this, I, I found inspiration in kind of an unlikely place. A Netflix sitcom called The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, right, the main character played by Ellie Kemping. It's all coming back to The Office because she was on The Office first as, uh, uh, I'm blanking on her name, Aaron, thank you, Aaron. But she's being held captive. She's in this bunker by this kind of weird cult religious leader, and she and the other tenants were required to perform these various tasks. And one of them was there was this crank in the corner of the bunker that they had to constantly be turning. Very arduous task. And you later learn that it, was, it generated electricity in, in the cult leader's house. Uh, but it was a wearisome and tedious task. And Kimmy often took it upon herself to be the one to turn the crank. And they're like, how can you do this? And she said this. She said, you can do anything for 10 seconds. And so she would take this task 
and she'd break it again. I don't know that this is necessarily scientifically proven, but she would, you know, like count to 10 as she's turning this, and she would get to the 10 and kind of brush it off. All right, I can start again. Each of those time slots in and of themselves were manageable in their own right. And I think when we, we sit here and acknowledge, like, Jesus, why haven't you come back? Like, he, he might come back five months from now. He might come back five years from now. He might come back 500 years from now. I have no idea how long that is going to be. So how do we wait for that? And so instead of focusing on that unknown, how long am I going to have to turn this crank? How long am I going to have to wait for you to come back, Jesus? Because we don't have the precise moment that he's coming back. The primary information we've been given, what Jesus told us to do is not figure it out, not find this mathematical formula. You know, you've seen that meme with that guy with all the bullets, you know, board pointing to things, drawing things. That's not what Jesus says to do so that we can land on the precise date. He says, be ready. Be prepared, as we sang, like a bride prepared, dressed for her groom, will be ready for you in season and out for that arrival. And so instead of focusing on the indefinite end time, focus on this year. Focus on this month. Maybe all you can focus on is this week. How are you drawing closer to God? How are you being prepared for that arrival that we wait for? How are we leaning into his purposes for you, waiting for God to move? When we sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, or we're going to close with, Come thou long-expected Jesus, we wait with solidarity of those who have waited before us for generations who have sang these songs. We join them in the course of that expect- expectancy that God is going to do something, whether it is in our lifetimes or beyond. Because what we've learned from the story by Mo Willems this morning is that when that thing we've been waiting for so long finally arrives, it's going to be worth it. That child that arrived in the manger that first Christmas morning was mighty God, the fullness of deity, the fullness of God in human flesh, the one who lived, suffered, and bled so that we might have life. The same king is returning again to take all that is wrong and make it right. So this week, right, we're going to be waiting this week. So here are some questions for us to reflect on. First is this, how can your excitement in anticipation for Christmas morning, I feel it's a similar feeling to the return of Christ. Right? Because I know I'm looking forward four weeks from now to Christmas. But, you know, there are times when I just don't even... Jesus coming back. Just being honest, right? I, I can, it's easy to go about my, my day and not think about that. So how can we kind of channel that ex- expectancy that we have in this season and kind of cultivate it in our focus on Jesus, uh, his re- second coming, his return? Second is this, read Revelation 19. There's a lot, I mean, there's a lot in Revelation. Uh, You know, that robe dipped in blood may be Jesus' own blood, but there are some other very, very graphic and gruesome images in there that just doesn't often feel like it connects with what we read about Jesus in the Gospels. And so read Revelation 19. Picture of Christ in this passage fit with your portrait of him in the Gospels. Why or why not? Kind of try to think about where does that disconnect come from you and why? And lastly is this, gets back to the return of Jesus. Do you feel prepared? Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Why or why not? Why don't you join me in prayer and then we'll sing one last closing song together. Lord, as we wait, as we celebrate, remember the candle of hope that there were many saints in the Old Testament who waited a really long time for you. 
And while we live in such a privileged time to be on this side of your birth, your first advent, we also are waiting for that second advent to come. And there are times that it seems like it'll never happen, God. There are times where we might give lip service to your second coming, your arrival, but you know what? We we have a list of things that we want to get done before you come back. Finally make this amount of money. Finally retire. Finally do this. Whatever it might be. We're just saying, God, wait a little bit longer. May that not be the cry. May we sing like we're going to sing here in a minute. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. We've been waiting for you. Come and set things right. May our hearts be prepared to receive you. In Jesus' name, amen.